I invite you to turn in your Bibles today to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, and we'll begin reading at verse 21, that's page 1527, 1527 in your pew Bibles this morning, and we're in the midst of a series, as you've heard, on the Christian virtues, and uh, this morning we are looking at the virtue of forgiveness an all-important virtue, forgiveness. Sort of the center of the Christian faith and therefore something that ought to be at the center of our own lives, um, but not the easiest thing to do. So let's, uh, let's read what God's Word has to say about forgiveness this morning. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. Unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I was told there would be no math. How many times have you heard that phrase? And usually it's offered in jest, but unless your name happens to end in Angbers, There's usually more truth to it than not. But if we are going to talk about forgiveness, we have to do the math. Because unless we do the math, unless you understand the math in your heart, you won't have a clue what it really means when Jesus calls us to clothe ourselves with forgiveness. It's the Apostle Peter who gets the math started in our text. He approaches Jesus with a question that all of us 
at one point or another utter sometime in our lives, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, where does that first number come from? Where, where does Peter get that number seven? Well, in Peter's day, Jewish teaching said that you were to forgive someone who sinned against you up to three times. The fourth time, you were not bound. And so, Peter actually shows us that he's been hanging out with, with Jesus for a while, that he's picked up some things from Christ. And it, that number three just doesn't seem to, to strike real uh, with Peter. It doesn't seem generous enough. And so, he actually doubles the number of tradition, and he throws in one more just for good measure, and he asks Jesus, all right, Jesus, how many times should I forgive up to seven times? And if you think about it, that's a lot of times to forgive, isn't it? I mean, let's say your child is being reckless or acting out at the dinner table and she knocks over her milk and it spills all over the table and she says, I'm sorry. Well, that's one thing. But then if she does it again and again and again up to seven times, what do you do? Do you keep forgiving? So, I think Peter is actually being pretty generous here, and yet apparently not generous enough. Because Jesus says, not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. Another number. 77. Where do you think Jesus pulls that number from? Well, way back in, in Genesis 4, we read about a man named Lamech. And Lamech actually uses that same number as a boast. He says to his wives, he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. And if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech here is, is bragging about taking vengeance out of God's hands and into his own hands. And he's referring to unlimited vengeance. I will take unlimited vengeance against anyone who tries to hurt me. Jesus then takes that symbolic number 77 and he applies it to forgiveness. You must forgive 77 times. You must have in your heart unlimited forgiveness. But that's just the start of the math. However, can we hope to gain a heart willing to offer unlimited forgiveness? This is the question. And this is the question that Jesus answers with a story, with a parable. In scene one of the parable, a king decides to settle accounts with his servants. And the first servant that's brought to him is a man who owes 10,000 talents. The man is not able to pay, so the king orders that he and his family be sold into slavery. But the, the servant begs, begs for pity, begs for mercy, says that if you just give me a little time, I'll be able to pay everything back the king actually gives him more than a little time. He cancels the entire debt. He's a free man, a free man. 
In scene two of the parable, this very servant then goes out and he finds a fellow servant who owes him a debt, a debt of a hundred denarii. The second servant, likewise, cannot pay, and he too asks for a little time, a little patience, but the first servant will have none of it, and he has the man thrown into prison until he can pay back every dime that he owes. And by the time we get to scene three, the king has heard about this unforgiving attitude of the first servant, and he scolds the servant, and he tells him that you should have responded to mercy with mercy. And he turns him over to the jailers to be tortured. Now, even before you do the math, I think you get the gist of the story, right? Forgiveness is about imitating the generosity of the king. Forgiveness, forgiving one another at our level, the person in the pew with you, the person across the church with you, the person who you work with, forgiving at our level is really mimicking the generosity of our God. We kind of get that, right? But let's go ahead and do the math anyway. We hear from Jesus that the first servant owes the king a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, now, sometimes in order to help us understand that, the translators add of gold, 10,000 talents of gold. Now, one talent of gold was said to be worth about 20 years worth of wages for a, a day laborer, 20 years worth of, of wages. So the debt here is said to be 10,000 times 20 years of wages, right? And I think, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's about 200,000 years worth of wages. That's the debt of this, of this servant, okay? 200,000 years worth of wages. But that still probably misses Jesus' point. The Greek word that's translated here, 10,000, is the word murius, murius. It comes, or actually our word myriad comes from that word. It was actually the highest multiplier that was used in Jesus' day, okay, murius. And a talent was a measure of weight. It was simply a measure of weight. And it was the largest measure of weight that was used in Jewish commerce at the time. And so, in effect, Jesus isn't even saying this man owed a debt of 200,000 years worth of wages. What he is saying is that He's using the largest measure of weight and multiplying at times the largest multiplier available to him at the time, and he's saying that this man's debt was actually beyond calculation. This was an infinite debt. It was an unlimited debt. This is what Jesus says the servant is forgiven, something that he absolutely absolutely could never pay back, not even in 200,000 years. That's what he's forgiven. Now, compare that with scene two, to what the servant owed his fellow servant, okay? Our text says it's a hundred denarii. I don't know about you, but there's another text uh, note in my Bible. It might be in yours, too, in the margin or at the bottom. And it says, 100 denarii, just a few dollars. Okay, just a few dollars. So in a mathematical sense, this parable, I think, 
makes the point, it makes it well, it makes sense. And that is, if you just sort of step back and you examine the equation that Jesus is putting out for us, forgiveness, our forgiveness, seems pretty logical, doesn't it? God has forgiven us as believers an unlimited debt, an infinite debt, and therefore we're to turn around and forgive one another our little debts that we hold against one another. And it sounds like our little debts against one another are actually rather trite. God has been infinitely gracious to us, and we are to pass that grace on to the next person. Okay, that's the math. But now let's forget about the math. Because most of us do. As soon as I am the person who is sinned against, as soon as I'm the one who suffers the injustice, all the math goes out the window, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, it's like I'm seated in one of those obstructed view seats at AmFam Field. And I can't really see the field. I can't even see scene one anymore. All I can see is the offense that's been done to me. Forget about the math. Let's think for a moment what it means to actually forgive. To forgive someone means to let go of your anger toward them. But more than that, it means to let go of an anger that you have a right to. To let go of an anger that you have every right to. You've been hurt. And that's real. And you're angry. And you have a right to be. We call this righteous anger or justified anger. And the Bible speaks about this kind of anger. It's an anger that is against, and it's against some evil that has been done to you. But I want to be clear here, because not all anger is righteous anger, is it? I mean, if you get angry over someone else's good fortune, that's not righteous anger. If you get angry because your neighbor was able to buy a new car and you weren't, that's not righteous anger. That's envy. And it's ugly. Or if you get anger, be angry because you went to the zoo and you wanted to see the tiger moving around and maybe eating some food and he just laid there the whole time. He just laid there and so you got mad and you got angry. That's not righteous anger. Tigers have... They do that sort of thing, don't they? It's just the way tigers are. It's nothing to get angry about. That's not righteous anger. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. And actually, I think the math in scene two of the parable, in that, in that scene, Jesus acknowledges this. Is it really true, do you think, that a hundred denarii is worth just a few dollars. Well, I know where we get that impression, right? 
Some time ago, um, someone wrote a book on 911 emergency operators. <clears throat> I've lost the reference now. Um, but the author said that one of the things operators, 911 operators, have the most trouble dealing with is the extreme range of emergencies that they handle. One operator told the story of how she took a call from an 11-year-old girl who said that her mom had just shot herself and she didn't know what she was supposed to do. The very next call was from someone complaining that their neighbor's dog was barking too much. Now, after you take that first call, friends, it doesn't really matter what the next person says. It's not going to compare, is it? And the same is true with Jesus' parable. When you hear about a debt of 10,000 talents and that debt is, is just canceled, nothing's going to compare to that. And so we say, well, it's just a, a few dollars. It's just trite. But Jesus here does not intend to minimize a hundred denarii kinds of sins. He doesn't. From another of Jesus' parables, we know that a denarius, one denarius, was worth about a full day's wage. That would mean that the debt that this one servant owed his, his, this other servant was about three months' worth of wages, a little more than that. That's, that's about a quarter of your year's income. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to go a quarter of the year without any income, I know my budget would take a hit. I would feel that. I would know it. And I think this is sort of Jesus' way of acknowledging that, hey, you and I can do some pretty bad stuff to each other. We can really hurt each other if we want to. I think about Corey Ten Boom, that Nazi prison camp survivor. She was giving uh, speeches after she had gotten out of the camps. And I, I think Dan Green, when he talk, taught on forgiveness, he might have played the audio or something from, from this scene. But after one of those speeches, all of a sudden standing right in front of her was one of the very guards who had terrorized her her whole time in camp. And there he stood with his hand out asking for her forgiveness. And she was too stunned to know what to do. But you really don't have to be a, a prison camp survivor to know a hundred denarii kinds of sins. Maybe you lost your job or a promotion because a co-worker was spreading untruths about you behind your back. You didn't know anything about it. Or maybe you once had a, a coach in your life who criticized you mercilessly laughed at the way you ran or caught a ball or maybe like jesus your best friend denied you three times those things hurt they really do they cause you real pain and you have a right to the anger that comes as a result. To forgive is to let go. 
to let go of that anger, that anger that you have every right to hang on to. And that's why forgiveness, we say, is divine. Because in order to do it, you need God's help. In fact, in some cases, you need an outright God sort of miracle. Actually, I think what you need is is to die and rise with Christ, which is what this series is all about. We might say, actually, that we need two dyings and two risings. First, it requires the dying of confession. Um, That's where this parable starts, doesn't it? Neil Plantinga refers to a juvenile court in Maryland that some time ago began to experiment with offering juvenile offenders a choice. It was a choice between being incarcerated for their offense or else they could go through something called a repentance ceremony. To go through a repentance ceremony, an offender has to come with a parent or a guardian or someone representing him, and the victim also has to come with a parent, a guardian, someone representing her. And the offender then has to get down on his knees in front of the victim. And he has to say this, literally. He has to say this to the victim. I hurt you by whatever it was that he did. Let's say, I hurt you by molesting you. What I did was very wrong. I'm very sorry that I did it. I should never have done it. And I promise to never do that again. That's the repentance ceremony. Now, interestingly, court officials report two conclusions from this experiment. The first is that people who actually went through this ceremony, offenders who went through this um, repentance ceremony, had a lower rate of recidivism than those who just got tossed into jail. Okay? But the second thing they noticed was this, that a fair number of juvenile offenders would rather go to jail. They chose jail. It's so difficult to be tough and to be hard when you are on your knees in front of somebody that you have hurt, telling them how wrong you were. It's mortifying, you might say. It kills you to do that. But in the case of a Christian, that's our only hope. That's what scene one of Jesus' parable is really about. It's about the need for you and for me to get on our knees before God and to admit that we have done wrong. It's to admit our debt. It's the need to quit deceiving ourselves and to see the needy sinner that we are that stands before God. It's to see the fact that we have a debt, I have a debt that I cannot pay. 
And friends, the person who thinks that with just a little more time or with just a little more effort, I can make this right, that person has to die because I can't make it right. That person has to die to confess this. To confess our sins to God is to die with Jesus Christ. But what do we say? When we die with Jesus, we also rise with Jesus, right? Yes, someone dies. When we die with Christ, we die, but we also rise with Jesus. And the person who rises is someone who has been forgiven. The person who rises is, is someone who is grateful. The person who rises is, is somebody who is now is, is humble. And it's someone who, who wants to pass on the grace that I've received to, to everybody else that I know. To confess is to die but it's also to rise. But there's a, a second dying that has to take place as well, and that's the dying that's required here in scene two. Just like it's hard to confess, just like it kills you to confess, it also kills you to forgive. Because forgiving is hard as well. Remember, forgiveness is, is letting go of an anger that we have a right to. I mean, what if the sinner doesn't repent? What if she never says, you know, I hurt you. I did something wrong. Or, or what if he does confess, but you don't believe him? It didn't sound genuine. And you know what? He hasn't changed his ways. Or what if the offense really hurt? I mean, it wasn't a hundred denarii sin. It was 200, 300, 500. It, it really hurt. Or, or what if the offender was, was somebody that, that you really trusted? I mean, what if it was a son or a daughter? What if it was a business partner that you were all in with? What if it was a spouse? Forgiveness is hard. It requires a death. The person who sees in the offender, and again, this comes from Dan Green, the person who sees in the offender a monster and not a fellow sinner, that person has to die. The person who believes, I've never sinned myself, I've never hurt anybody like that, not, not 300 or 100 denarii worth, that person has to die. And the person who won't even assess, who won't even begin to assess or to think about, 
Well, maybe, maybe in some small way, I was partly to blame. That person has to die. And the person who will not even consider what might have motivated or what might have happened in that person's background that caused them to hurt me this way, that person has to die. And the person who wants to tell the story over and over and over again and tell it to every person that he or she meets, that person has to die. That person must die and must be buried with Christ. But as we said, when you die with Christ, you also rise with Christ. Someone dies, yes, but someone also rises in her place. And that person who rises is someone who is free. Free from the anger, free from the bitterness, free from the resentment, free from, you know, having to walk into rooms and kind of look and see if the offender is there, free from the bitterness, free from the hatred, the desire for revenge, free from all of it, and free once again to be a servant a glad servant of the King. Forgiveness requires a dying and a rising. But before we, we go, before we end, we're going to switch just briefly from math to geometry. What I mean by that is that in order to forgive, there's maybe one more thing that can help that comes in this parable. And that's our picture of the king and our picture of the servant. Those things need to be right-sized. They need to be right-sized. If you think of Lamech again, Lamech, I think, struggled with geometry a bit because he flipped Jesus' parable upside down. Lamech thought that God was tiny, that God was small, and that he himself was really, really big. And so Lamech felt that he had to take vengeance into his own hands. That God wasn't capable of that. He couldn't leave that to God because God was too small, too trite. Christians are just the opposite from Lamech. We understand that, that we may get hurt in this life and we may not be able to get justice here and now, but we also believe that we can drop the anger that we have a right to anyway. Because we trust that in the end, God is big enough to sort it all out. In other words, we take the long view of history, don't we? And we believe that in the end, evil cannot and will not win. We believe that because God is a perfect and just judge, that even if we don't get justice today, there will be justice. There will be. Friends, rising with Christ means to trust God as Jesus trusted God. 
Jesus died the most unjust death ever died in this world. He was completely, totally innocent and pure, but he was blamed for the sin of the entire world. He was blamed for my sin. He was blamed for your sin. And yet he still went to the cross trusting the outcome to God. Trusting that his sacrifice would not be wasted. Trusting that he would not be abandoned to the grave, but that he would one day be raised and he would be vindicated before all heaven and all earth. He trusted that one day every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, Jesus trusted this big God and those who rise with Christ rise with Jesus' right-sized view of the Father in heaven. He's the king. He's just. He's capable. And he will make matters right. Those who rise with Christ rise with the long view of history. And so, friends, clothe yourselves with Christ. Let go of the anger, even the anger you have a right to. Clothe yourselves with forgiveness, as God has forgiven you. We're going to spend a few moments again just reflecting on the forgiveness of our God and the call to forgive one another. A few moments to spend in silent prayer and in song. We'll sing again, Take, O oh, Take Me As I Am. The worship team is going to lead us.
Sun.